Recorded live. I don't know what I don't know why I do that. Hello, this is William Fink and this is Christagenia.org and Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 14th. I'm sorry. It's Friday, March 20th, I think, 2014. Friday, March 21st. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just lost. At least I caught my mistake. Tonight we're going to present Micah Part 5, the last segment of our presentation of the prophecy of Micah. I, I want to say a couple of things. I'm going to be doing um, call-in programs. I'm going to be starting possibly next week. I don't know if I'm going to interject anything else in between. I think I'll probably be starting a presentation of Paul's epistle to the Romans next week, next Friday night. I'm going to be doing call-in programs probably the first full week of April, not, not, not the fourth and the fifth, but the week following that. Leading up to that week, I'll be in New York and, and probably have little time to, to prepare for programs, to prepare any material to present. I, um, I, I have to sew up some odds and ends up there and do a few errands and, and it, God willing, Yahweh willing, it will be my last trip to New York. I, I mean, at least that, that I, that I have to make. I, I'd rather stay out of New York anyway. That, that's a whole different story. That, there's nothing there for me anymore. Somebody asked me leading into this program, and, and since I didn't really have anything to rant about, I, I thought about a couple of things, but they weren't very significant. Since I really didn't have anything to rant about before I start this presentation, this gives me an opportunity. Somebody asked me if I'm a, a, a fan of somebody on the Internet, and, and I've said this probably hundreds of times on the Christogenia chat server, we we don't need fans. I don't want to be a fan of nobody. I'm only a fan of Yahshua Christ, a fan of Yahweh our God. He's the only man I want to put on a pedestal and and, and Adelaide. The idea of fans and the idea of Christianity that those two ideas are in direct conflict with each other. We have one master, one teacher one God and creator of all, and we should all be brethren. I don't want fans. If you're going to listen to me because you're a fan, I don't want you listening to me. Beat it. Scram. Goodbye. Good riddance. That's not the mentality that we should have being good, God-fearing Christians. I want fellow workers. That's what I want. I want people to work with me. People who might appreciate my efforts, but I want people to work with me in a common cause. Whether they agree with me 100% or not is immaterial. I got so many clowns that, uh, oh, it's either 
um, that this guy or Bill Fink, and I'm tired of Bill Fink, screw him, I don't, I don't agree with him on this issue or that issue, and they're usually really minor issues. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I don't, it's ridiculous to get down to the point where it has to be one or the other, but what you should do is examine what somebody's teaching and measure that against the scripture. It's the scripture that should be our guiding rule. If somebody's teaching contrary to the scripture and purposely and won't be corrected, and there's plenty of those clowns who think they have truth from God or, or, or who think that that, that they can get away with certain compromisers because it placates certain people. Well, those people, you shouldn't be listening to at all. And if you can't put those turkeys away, I don't want you listening to me. Get out of here, beat it, scram. If you can't take a man's work and compare it to the Word of God and judge what is good and what is bad, you can't be in this fight. You're a clown and you're kidding yourself. So we don't need fans. We need people. Real humility. I did a program on this once two years ago. Real humility isn't kissing each other's asses. It isn't being nice to men. Real humility is a desire and a will to be obedient to the Word of God. Period. That's real humility as defined by Scripture. Thank you. With that, we will begin our presentation of Micah, part five. This will be the final presentation in this series on Micah. In the first three chapters of Micah, we saw the prophet pronounce the judgments of God upon Israel and also upon Judah for the many transgressions they committed against both him and their own kinsmen. For those transgressions they would lose all of what they had because they dealt deceitfully with their God and their nation. From Micah chapter 1 verses 6 and 9 Yahweh says, Therefore I will make Samaria as a heap of the field and as plantings of a vineyard and I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley and I will discover the foundations thereof for her wound is incurable for it is come unto Judah he is come unto the gate of my people even to Jerusalem the Assyrians did take away all of Israel and all of the fenced cities and towns of Judah but they were stopped at the gate of Jerusalem. While Micah later on also prophesied at the end of his third chapter that Jerusalem shall become heaps, that judgment was reserved for execution until the time of the later Chaldean invasion. The names of the towns of Judah which Micah prophesied against also told the story in their meanings, from which we can gather deeper insight. For instance, the beginning of sin for Israel was their belief that they were invincible because their God was with them. That idea is encapsulated 
in Micah's utterance concerning Lachish, and which is also stated explicitly at Micah 3.11, where it says of the false prophets, that yet will they lean upon Yahweh and say, Is not Yahweh among us? No evil can come upon us. They were kidding themselves. The children of Israel cannot sin and then feel that they can prevail simply because their God is with them. But this was the attitude which Micah ascribes to them in his time. It must also be observed that those who understand and were sorrowful over Israel's sin, they hoped for good. But Israel was only worthy of Yahweh's judgment, an idea which we see encapsulated in Micah's utterance concerning Maroth. The people who sat in sorrow, the people who sat in Maroth, hoped for good, and they only got Yahweh's judgment, his wrath. In the fourth and fifth chapters of Micah, we saw what would become of Israel in the last days. In those days which followed her impending captivity at the hand of the Assyrians. Micah chapter 4 expresses these things and ends with the words, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. Then Micah chapter 5 expresses these same things in a different manner and ends with the words, So will I destroy thy cities meaning the cities of Israel. And I will execute vengeance and anger and fury upon the heathen. These prophecies have other prophetic parallels in Ezekiel, Isaiah, Obadiah, and elsewhere. But especially in the Revelation. While ancient Israel thought that because they were the people of Yahweh and that they were invincible and therefore would not be punished for their sin, we read in the Revelation where it describes the whore that has attached herself to the beast. And it says, how much has she glorified herself and lived deliciously So much torment and sorrow give her, for she says in her heart, I sit a queen, and am not a widow, and shall see no sorrow. Revelation 18.7 So once again we see a people which does not believe that the judgment of God would come upon them. Yet it certainly shall come upon them. Like Micah 4.18, and also like Obadiah 17. I'm sorry, did I say Micah 4.18? I think I meant Micah 4.12. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. The revelation tells us that the children of God would indeed be the instruments of God's wrath. where it says in that same place, Come out of her, my people, 
and reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her, double according to her works, in the cup which she has filled, fill to her double. Revelation 18, verses 4 and 6. Ostensibly, where the word of Yahweh says, In Micah, arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, and where the word of Yahweh says, So will I destroy thy cities. Speaking to those same people. It is those of the children of Israel who shall separate themselves from the world after the fall of Babylon the Great. It is they who are the instruments used by God to destroy that same world. Christians are told to come out from the world and not to love the world because true Christians shall one day judge the world as Paul says in 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 2 Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? Indeed they shall. And there shall not be much left of it after they do. For this should the house of Israel be preparing themselves spiritually now. Yet we must await the announcement that Babylon the great is fallen is fallen and is become the habitation of devils, Jews, and the hold of every foul spirit, and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. You want to know what all these other races are filling up our cities? Every devil and foul spirit and cage of every unclean and hateful bird. What better description is there of most of these people inhabiting cities, the cities of what was formerly Christendom? What better description is there than that? What better description of these hateful nigger bastards is there than that passage of Revelation chapter 18? Observing the cities of Israel today, true Israel. They are indeed the habitation of devils and of every foul spirit and unclean and hateful bird. And therefore, they need to be destroyed as God has promised. That's the Christian promise. That's the hope we have in the return of Christ. It's out of our hands until then. The children of Israel who do love their God should once again be sitting in sorrow but not hoping for good. Instead they should be anticipating the impending judgment of Yahweh. From Isaiah chapter 41 from verse 14 Fear not. This is talking about well the, the, the redemption of Israel and the coming of Christ. Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith Yahweh, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. 
Behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument. Having teeth, thou shalt thresh the mountains and beat them small, and shalt make the hills as chaff. Thou shalt fan them, and the wind shall carry them away. And as Obadiah says, they shall be as though they had never been. And the whirlwind shall scatter them, and thou shalt rejoice in Yahweh, and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. And then we will follow his law. The destruction of the cities of Israel presaged in Micah chapter 5 is the execution of the law of Yahweh against idolatry. For Moses had written in Deuteronomy chapter 13 from verse 12. If thou shalt hear, say in one of thy cities which Yahweh thy God has given thee to dwell there, saying, Certain men, the children of Belial, are gone out from among you, and have drawn and withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then shalt thou inquire, and make search, and ask diligently. And behold, if it be truth, and the thing be certain, that such abomination is wrought among you. Thou shalt surely smite the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, destroying it utterly, and all that is therein, and the cattle thereof with the edge of the sword. And thou shalt gather all the spoil of it into the midst of the street thereof, and shalt burn with fire the city, and all the spoil thereof every whit. For Yahweh thy God, and it shall be a heap forever, it shall not be built again. There you have it, the judgment of God. Christians today, we have to wait on him, but we have to spiritually prepare ourselves for what to expect when his day of wrath finally comes. And we see that Babylon is fallen. With this, we will commence with Micah chapter 6, verse 1. Hear ye now what Yahweh saith. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, Yahweh's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For Yahweh has a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. This controversy and this pleading represents the reason why Israel is being punished and the things which Israel is to consider in the days of their captivity, which at this time was right around the corner. And that captivity has already been decreed with a decree that cannot be reversed. That captivity would be for a very long time. As certain prophecies indicate in Leviticus and in Daniel, from Leviticus chapter 26, among the curses of disobedience, then will I also walk contrary unto you, and will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall 
avenge the quarrel of my covenant. And when ye are gathered together within your cities, I will send a pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. And when I have broken the staff of your bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven. And they shall deliver you your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. And if you will not for all of this hearken to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary unto you also in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. Seven prophetic times. Daniel foresaw part of that as a time, times, and half a time. John, in the Revelation, I should say, Yahshua Christ, in the Revelation which he gave to John, saw another part as times. A time, times, and half a time. Or three and a half days. Or twelve hundred and sixty days, I'm sorry. Or three and a half times. Or forty-two months. They're all the same. In Ezekiel chapter 20, we see a message from Yahweh God unto the elders of Israel, who were already in captivity. And we see an appeal very much like the appeal which God makes to Israel, as it is recorded here in Micah chapter 6. Here it is cited in part, As I live, saith Yahweh God, Surely with a mighty hand, and with a stretched out arm, and with fury poured out, will I rule over you. And I will bring you out from the people, and will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people and there will I plead with you face to face. Very much like what we see in Revelation chapter 12. Like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness in the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith Yahweh God. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge out from among you the rebels, and them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am Yahweh. Here we see that Yahweh promises in Ezekiel that I will rule over you. And in the Revelation, in chapter 19, at the prophesied second advent of the Messiah, which is what chapter 19 is all about, we see that it is described that he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and the Lord of lords. There should be no doubt that the plan of God is to ultimately rule over his own people in the flesh as Yahshua Christ. The entire punishment of the children of Israel is ultimately because they rejected God as their king from the beginning, including the kingdom period after David and Solomon, after over 3,000 years of earthly tyrants and despots, the children of Israel should be happy to have 
God is their king once again. Verse 3. O my people, what have I done unto thee, and wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me, for I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And the concise nature of the writing of the prophet insists that those of the children of Israel who hear him consider what is being said and recall for themselves all of the wonderful things which Yahweh had done for the children of Israel in effecting their deliverance from the slavery of Egypt. Yahweh did nothing but good things for Israel and yet Israel has forsaken him to pursue the worldly ways of God's enemies. So it is then, so it is now. O my people, verse 5, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, from Shittim unto Gilgal, that ye may know the righteousness of Yahweh. Excuse me. In Numbers chapters 20 through through 24, we have a record of the consultation of Balak with the prophet Balaam of Pethor, who was a prophet of Aram Naharam. Naharaim, which means Aram of the rivers. It was apparently the Hebrew term for at least a part of Mesopotamia. And therefore Balaam was evidently of, of Aram, a Syrian. Balaam was hired by Balak to curse the children of Israel as they were invading Palestine. And every time he attempted to curse them, by the will of God, he could only bless them instead. However, it is evident that the book of Numbers, by itself, as it survived to us, does not have everything which Balaam answered of Balak, since it can be discerned for the words of Christ in the Revelation, and for the epistles of Peter and Jude, that there must have been more to the story. The Apostle Peter likened certain cursed children having eyes full of adultery to the way of Balaam. Jude reckoned the error of Balaam along with the way of Cain. Christ in Revelation chapter 2 informs us that Balaam had taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. These things are not related in the account as it now exists in Numbers. But after Balaam and Balak part ways at the end of Numbers chapter 24, we read in the opening verse of chapter 25 that Israel abode in Shittim and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. The denominational sects foolishly claim that this is a reference to idolatry alone. 
But it does not say that they committed fornication with the gods of Moab. It rather says that they committed fornication with the daughters of Moab. This is a reference to race mixing. And Baal worship was a fertility cult in which sexual intercourse was a ritual. They would have sex right at the altar. From what we have in numbers, however, it is learned that no matter how the other nations wished to curse Israel, that Yahweh would ensure that Israel was blessed instead. Yet once Israel was tempted to mingle with those other nations, the wrath of God would come upon them. Paul of Tarsus also recognized this and warned the Corinthians not to commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day twenty and three thousand. 1 Corinthians 10.8 The story of Phineas in Numbers chapter 25 ensures the certainty of the interpretation where he was rewarded for running through with a spear a chief man of the tribe of Simeon who had brought a Midianitish woman into his tent in the sight of all Israel. With the same spear he ran through the man and the woman. Apparently he did so as the two were joined together in fornication. Race mixing. The Israelites were told to stay away from the Moabites. Verse 6. Wherewith shall I come before Yahweh and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? This is Micah putting these words in the mouth of Yahweh. Yahweh is attributing these words to the imaginations of the children of Israel. This is rhetorical. Will Yahweh be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed me, O man, what is good. And what does Yahweh require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. So we have Yahweh presenting these questions to Israel and of course the answers are no. The children of Israel need not go and bow themselves before God and come with burnt offerings and calves of a year old nor bring thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil. What's more important is that they do justly and love mercy and walk humbly before God. The first things mentioned, yeah, they were requirements of the law and we should do them. But the second things mentioned, the love and the mercy and the justice, they are more important than the requirements of the law. If we don't do the second things, those first things, fulfilling the requirements of the law, are meaningless. As to the reference to the sacrifice of one's firstborn, 
That was an element of the Old Testament to dedicate one's firstborn to God, Numbers 3.12. Not necessarily a physical sacrifice. It was an element of paganism, where the firstborn was literally sacrificed on an altar for various times and reasons. But all of this was also a type for the Messiah. In Matthew 12.7, Christ is recorded as quoting the text of Hosea 6.6, where he states, But if you had known what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. The religious system of sacrifices, as well as the legal system of Levites and judges, were corrupted in the Old Kingdom and were used for oppression rather than for justice. From Hosea, chapter 6, from verse 4, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew, it goes away. It burns up when the sun hits it. Therefore have I hewed them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And thy judgments are as the light that goes forth. For I have desired mercy and not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But they like men have transgressed the covenant there have they dealt treacherously against me because fulfilling the word of the law is not enough mercy on your brother and just judgment are more important verse 9 Yahweh's voice cries unto the city and the man of wisdom shall see thy name hear ye the rod and who has appointed it? The rod. The rod of Yahweh's chastisement. As we have just seen in Ezekiel chapter 20 in verse 37, Yahweh said to Israel in their captivity that I will cause you to pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Further, from Amos chapter 3 verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? The children of Israel would be chastised and will be chastised until they are brought into agreement with God. That's why I say teaching Israel identity, teaching scripture, trying to be a a light so people can see how they should walk through this life. We don't have to agree with each other, but we have to agree with God. If we don't agree with God, then we have a problem. Once we all agree with God, it'll naturally follow suit that we will love and agree with each other. Verse 10. Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is abominable? Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances, and with the bag of deceitful weights? For the rich men thereof are full of violence, 
and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore also will I make thee sick, in smiting thee, in making thee desolate because of thy sins. Strip bare and naked. Among the sins of Israel recounted by Amos was their making the ephah small, and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit. Amos 8.5 Earlier in Micah, in chapters 2 and 3, certain men of Israel are chastised for coveting and taking the fields and the houses of the poor, thereby eating the flesh of my people, and even going so far as to dispossess women and children from their homes. Micah chapter 2, verses 2 and 9. Micah chapter 3. Verses 2 and 3. In Amos chapter 2 we read, Thus saith Yahweh, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will turn, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. Amos is saying the same thing Micah did, putting it a little differently. The oppression of their own poor tribesmen by the wealthy is one of the chief transgressions of ancient Israel. In Revelation chapter 18, speaking of mystery Babylon and Israel in captivity in the last days, we see that it is the merchants of the earth who are characterized as lamenting over its fall, where it says in verse 11 and in verse 19, and the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buys their merchandise any more. Throw your seer's card in the garbage. And they cast dust on her heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea, by reason of her costliness. For in one hour she is made desolate. Then it says in verse 20, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. In Hosea chapter 2, speaking of these same sins of Israel, we see that by seeking these riches in international trade, the same riches described in Revelation 18, the nation was described as being in harlotry or whoredom. For their mother has played the harlot. She that conceived them has done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, meaning the other nations and their gods. I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Globalism is odious to God. Thou shalt eat but not be satisfied, Micah 6.14. And thy casting down shall be in the midst of thee, and thou shalt take hold, but shalt not deliver, and that which thou deliverest will I give up to the sword. Thou shalt sow, but shalt not reap. Thou shalt tread the olives, but thou shalt not anoint thee with oil and sweet wine but thou shalt not drink 
Prosperity and satisfaction in the works of men's hands is a blessing from God. When Israel is disobedient, those things are withdrawn from man. From Haggai, chapter 1, from verse 6. You've sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag full of holes. Today we labor for salaries and then price inflation and continual tax increases prevent us from saving anything. And the curses of disobedience listed in Deuteronomy chapter 28, it warns us from verse 38. Thou shalt carry much seed out into the field, but shalt gather little in. For the locusts shall come and consume it. Thou shalt plant vineyards and dress them, but shalt neither drink it a wine, nor gather the grapes. For the worms shall eat them. Today they are called Mexicans. Thou shalt have olive trees throughout all thy coasts, but thou shalt not anoint thyself with oil. For thine olive shall cast his fruit. Thou shalt beget sons and daughters, but thou shalt not enjoy them, for they shall go into captivity. Even more harrowing, and even more descriptive of this very day today, it says in the same chapter. Thy sons and thy daughters shall be given unto another people. Race mixing. Race mixing, like sodomy, is therefore a result of disobedience to God. Thy sons and thy daughters shall be given unto another people, and thine eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all the day long, and there shall be no might in thine hand. We will not be able to stop it. Think about that when you see little Susie walking down the street with that nigger tomorrow. Verse 16. For the statutes of Omri are kept, and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you walk in their counsels, that I should make thee a desolation, and the inhabitants thereof a hissing. Therefore ye shall hear, the, ye shall bear the reproach of my people. This is going to beckon a long conversation about Omri and Ahab and Jezebel, which will lead us into a conversation about Tyre. And the conversation about Tyre will be pertinent to Micah chapter 7. From 1 Kings chapter 16, it is evident why Omri and his son Ahab were so odious to God. I'll read from verse 23. In the thirty and first year of Asa, king of Judah, began Omri to reign over Israel. Twelve years, six years reigned he in Tirzah, and he bought the hill of Samaria of Shamer for two talents of silver and built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built after the name of Shamer, owner of the hill, Samaria. But Omri wrought evil in the eyes of Yahweh, and did worse than all that were before him. For he walked 
in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin, wherewith he made Israel the sin, to provoke Yahweh, God of Israel, to anger with their vanities. Now the rest of the acts of Omri which he did, and his might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Omri left with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. And Ahab his son reigned in his stead. And in the thirty, in the thirty and eighth year of Asa king of Judah began Ahab the son of Omri to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of Yahweh above all that were before him. So Omri was bad and Ahab was worse. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke Yahweh God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. The personality of Omri and the impact he had on the character of the nation of Israel cannot be discounted or diminished. For well over a hundred years after his death, the Assyrians referred to Israel as the Bit Qumri, or the House of Omri, a name they took with them into captivity, whereby they were called Chimerians by the Greeks, Chimeroi being from Qumri. One pressing question which may be raised and answered here, because we hear it quite often, is this. Was Jezebel a Canaanite? While many whom we have heard on this issue like to believe that she was. This is what Christ says about Jezebel in Revelation chapter 2 in the message to the assembly at Thuatira from verse 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation except they repent of their deeds. So it is, evident, it is evident that Jezebel had room to repent. Evidently still has room to repent. And therefore it is also evident that she was probably not a Canaanite by blood from that estimation. However, on the other hand, it may be argued effectively that the words of the Revelation use her name only as a type, as an allegory, and that perhaps she was a Canaanite. 
Since we may never know the truth of the matter, the possibility cannot be completely discounted. Her father, Ethbal, was a pagan priest who usurped the throne of Tyre. There were many pagan priests in Israel since the time when the religion of the golden calf was resurrected by Jeroboam I, who we saw mentioned in the passage concerning Omri and Ahab. Jeroboam I instituted a new pagan priesthood and he made paganism the new state religion, for which we should see 1 Kings chapter 12 where it says... And this is right after Solomon's death and the division of the kingdom. And it says, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. And they shall kill me, and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel, and made two calves of gold, and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt, meaning the calves. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places, and he made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like under the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing under the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. The first king of the northern tribes instituted paganism as the religion of state in Israel, and none of his successors ever repented and reverted to Yahweh their God. We see in 2 Chronicles chapter 11 from verse 14, For the Levites left their suburbs and their possession and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had cast them off from executing the priest's office unto Yahweh. And he ordained him priests for the high places and for the devils and for the calves which he had made. These pagan idols of ancient Israel were not destroyed until the days of Josiah, the king of Judah, as the act is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 23. By that time, the pagan tribes of Israel, along with much of Judah, had long been taken away by the Assyrians. Therefore, it is certainly a possibility that Ethbal, the father of Jezebel, was an Israelite and not a Canaanite, although he was indeed a pagan priest. 
But the matter cannot be determined with absolute certainty. Ahab had two sons by Jezebel, Ahaziah and Joram, who each became king of Israel after his death. Ahaziah reigned but two years, and Joram for twelve. Ahab also had a daughter who was married to Joram king of Judah. This daughter, the notorious Athaliah, was not necessarily, and was very likely not, a daughter of Jezebel but was even more likely from another of his wives. For Ahab had seventy sons from many different wives, and ostensibly he also had many daughters. Ethbal, <coughs> this figure is known to us from history. Ethbal was called Ethobalus by the historian Flavius Josephus, where he is mentioned in his writing against Appion. Here from book one, I'm going to quote a lengthy passage. I have several reasons for quoting this passage. Here, from book one, from line 116. And now, I shall add Menander the Ephesian as an additional witness. What Josephus is doing was listing witnesses to the antiquity of Judah. This Menander wrote the acts that were done by both the Greeks and barbarians under every one of the Tyrian kings. So we see that there were Greeks under the rule of the Tyrians and there were barbarians or people who did not speak Greek under the rule of the Tyrians. Joseph is attesting to that indirectly and had taken much pains to learn their history out of their own records. It said that Menander of Ephesus had translated the ancient chronicles of Tyre. Wow, would I love to get my hands on them. Now, when he was writing about those kings that had reigned at Tyre, he came to Hiram and says thus, Upon the death of Abibalus, his son Hiram took the kingdom. He lived fifty-three years and reigned thirty-four. He raised a bank on what was called the Broad Place and dedicated that golden pillar which is in Jupiter's temple. The Greek is Zeus, Zeus's temple. This is Whiston's translation. He also went and cut down timber from the mountain called Libanus, Lebanon and got timber of cedar for the roofs of the temples. He also pulled down the old temples and built new ones. Besides this, he consecrated the temples of Hercules and of Astarte. He first built Hercules' temple in the month of Perilius, and that of Astarte when he made his exposition against his expedition against the Tidians, who would not pay him their tribute. And when he had subdued them to himself, he returned home. Under this king, there was a younger son of Abdemon, who mastered the problems which Solomon, king of Jerusalem, had recommended to be solved. Now the time from this king to the building of Carthage is thus calculated. Upon the death of Hiram, 
Baliazarus, his son, took the kingdom. He lived 43 years and reigned seven years. And after him succeeded his son, Abdestardus. He lived 29 years and reigned nine years. Now four of his, four sons of his nurse plotted against him and slew him the oldest of whom reigned twelve years. After them came Astartus, the son of Deliastartus. He lived fifty-four years and reigned twelve years. And after him came his brother Asiramus. He lived fifty-four years and reigned nine years. He was slain by his brother Phelas, who took the kingdom but reigned eight months, though he lived fifty years. He was slain by Ithobalus, Ethbal, Jezebel's father. He was slain by Ithobalus, the priest of Astar, who reigned 32 years and lived 68 years. He was succeeded by his son, Badazorus, who lived 45 years and reigned 6 years. He was succeeded by Matganus, his son, he lived 32 years and reigned 9 years. Pygmalion succeeded him. He lived 56 years and reigned 47 years. Now in the 7th year of his reign, he would have been quite young, right? His sister fled away from him and built the city of Carthage in Libya. Now Pygmalion was later mythologized by the Greeks, especially by Ovid, the Roman poet. And his sister Dido was made famous by the poet Virgil in his Aheneid. Pygmalion is, uh, is also mentioned on an inscription found in Sardinia, in the late 18th century, which is believed to date to the 9th century BC. That inscription describes a battle between the Tyrians and the Sardinians over Tarshish. The Tyrians and the Sardinians at the time of maybe the 8th century BC, 9th century BC, 800 and something BC, that's right around the time of Ahab and Omri. At that time, the Tyrians and Sardinians were fighting over control of Tarshish, which is in southern Spain. And the Sardinians were driven out. It can be established that the word which gives us Sardinia comes from Hebrew words Sar and Dan, Sardana, and means remnant of Dan. So the whole time, getting back to Josephus, so the whole time from the reign of Hiram till the building of Carthage amounts to the sum of 155 years and 8 months. Since then, the temple was built at Jerusalem in the twelfth year of the reign of Hiram. There it was from the building of the temple until the building of Carthage, 143 years and eight months. Therefore, what occasion is there for alleging any more testimonies out of the Phoenician histories on behalf of our nation, meaning Judah?
Since what I have said is so thoroughly confirmed already, and to be sure, our ancestors came into this country long before the building of the temple, for it was not till we had gotten possession of the whole land by war that we built our temple. And this is the point that I have clearly proven out of our sacred writings in my antiquities. This passage was quoted at length here. In order to demonstrate not only the origins of Ethbal, the father of Jezebel, but also that Josephus had available to him the chronicles of ancient Tyre, which were translated into the Greek by Menander of Ephesus. And he had available to him a great wealth of knowledge of Tyrian history, which sadly, so far as we know, is lost to us today. However, Josephus's Against Appion, where it discusses Tyre in other places, will also assist us in our interpretation of parts of Micah chapter 7. We will get to that shortly. Micah chapter 7 is a lamentation of the state of Israel in the days of the prophet. It is every bit as relevant in the last days of which Micah had been prophesying earlier. Because history does indeed repeat itself. History repeats itself because the children of Israel have not learned from its lessons. Now we will commence with Micah chapter 7. Woe is me, for I am, as when they have gathered the summer fruits, as the grape gleanings of the vintage, there is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. The good man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man, his brother with the net. The seeking of wealth in merchandise and trade for which Israel was explicitly chastised in the prophecies of Amos, Hosea, Micah, that seeking of wealth leads to a competition amongst brethren and then to that individualism which is the inevitable result of commercialism or, as it is often called today, capitalism. Here in Micah 7.2 the result is expressed succinctly where men come to care only for their own gain even at the expense of their kin. Such individualism and capitalism are also responsible, among other sins, for the litigious society which we now witness today. Verse 3 that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asks, and the judge asks for reward. And the great man, he utters his mischievous desire. So they wrap it up. I like the Septuagint translation of that better interpretation, I should say. We will present that shortly. The best of them is as a briar, the most upright is sharper 
than a thorn hedge. The day of thy watchmen and thy visitation cometh. Now shall be their perplexity. We must bear in mind that all of these things which are written represent the public pronouncements of the prophet to the people as he was making them in his time. Here, Israel is being warned once again that judgment for the sins which are described is inevitable and impending. The Septuagint version of Micah chapter 7 verses 1 through 4 is more evidently agreeable to the, inter- to the interpretation provided here. Alas for me, for I am become as one gathering straw in the harvest, and as one gathering grape gleanings in the vintage, when there is no cluster for me to eat the first ripe fruit. Alas my soul, for the godly is perished from the earth, and there is none among men that orders his way aright. They all quarrel, even the blood, they grievously afflict every one his neighbor. They prepare their hands for mischief. The prince asks a reward, and the judge speaks flattering words. It is the desire of their soul. Therefore, I will take away their goods as a devouring moth, and as one who acts by a rigid rule in a day of visitation, Woe, woe, the times of vengeance are come, now shall be their lamentations. Verse 5 Trust ye not in a friend, put ye not confidence in a guide, keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lies in thy bosom. In the economic, political, and social climate, of the nation. A man cannot even trust his own wife. The Septuagint version reads, Trust not in friends, and confide not in guides. Beware of thy wife, so as not to commit anything to her. With the prevalence of divorce in society today, both men and women often have these same sentiments now. The individualistic greedy society of commerce, the the, the consumer society that the Jew has created in modern America today, in the modern West today, we see in ancient Israel with the same results. You couldn't even trust your spouse. Verse 6, For the son dishonors the father, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and the man's enemies are the men of his own house. We saw those same words quoted by Christ in reference to the Christian doctrine and its spread. People love the world. In apostasy, the children of Israel are naturally divided between those who love God and those who love the world. Now we see nearly every modern and marginally Christian family divided over the pressing social, political, and economic issues of the day. Only a near absolute apostasy from the word of God can divide families in such a manner where they all act against the interest of their own brethren 
and so many overtly act on behalf of the interests of the enemies of God. Verse 7, Therefore I will look unto Yahweh, I will await for the God of my salvation, my God will hear me, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, Yahweh shall be a light unto me. Only Yahweh our God can save us in such a world of evil. Christians are promised a greater hope in Christ, without which they have no hope at all, since a house divided against itself cannot stand. Christians have a hope that when we fall, we shall arise. That hope should make us fearless in the face of the enemies of our God. Verse 9. I will bear the indignation of Yahweh because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. These things are true on both personal and national levels. The judgment of the nation is a direct result of their disobedience to God, and even the Assyrian deportations of Judah and Israel were presaged in the curses of disobedience listed in Deuteronomy chapter 28 from verse 63. And it shall come to pass that as Yahweh rejoiced over you to do you good and to multiply you, so Yahweh will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught. And ye shall be plucked off from the land whither thou goest to possess it. And Yahweh shall scatter thee among all people from one end of the earth even unto the other. And there thou shalt serve other gods which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even wood and stone. When we search the historic and archaeological records for the so-called lost tribes, we must therefore look for pagans and not for so-called Jews. Verse 10 Then she that is mine enemy shall see it, and shame shall cover her which said unto me, Where is Yahweh thy God? Mine eyes shall behold her. Now shall she be trodden down as the mire of the streets. From 2 Peter chapter 3. The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by a way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandments of us apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
But the day of Yahweh will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Scoffers in the last days. Paul told us about it. Peter told us about it. And Micah tells us about it. Verse 11. In the day that thy walls are to be built, in that day shall the decree be far removed. The interpretation in the Septuagint seems to better fit the context of the chapter. Verse 11 from the Septuagint. It is the day of making brick. That day shall be thine utter destruction. And that day shall utterly abolish thine ordinances. Those ordinances referred to the decree which would be far removed. That's apparently a reference to the wicked statutes of Omri mentioned at the very end of Micah chapter 6 where the Hebrew word is essentially the same. Verse 12. In that day also he shall come even to thee from Assyria and from the fortified cities and from the fortress even to the river and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. And there's a contention with this verse. The Assyrian, the rod of Yahweh, I'm sorry, the rod of Yahweh's anger, as we see in the parallel prophecy of Isaiah chapter 10, will come to Israel from the fortified cities and from the fortress, from the fortress even to the river, and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. The Septuagint version of this verse is quite different. And thy cities shall be leveled and parted among the Assyrians. And thy strong cities shall be parted from Tyre to the river, and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. This verse in the Dead Sea Scrolls is too fragmented to accurately determine the actual text. There is a similar situation in Amos 3.11 where the context is identical. Speaking of the impending punishment of Israel and the King James Version based on the Masoretic text reads this, Therefore thus saith Yahweh God, An adversary there shall be round about the land, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. But in Amos 3.11 the Septuagint says, Therefore thus saith Yahweh God, O Tyre, the ancient city, Tyre, O Tyre, thy land shall be made desolate round about thee, and he shall bring down thy strength out of thee, and thy country shall be spoiled. So we see two references to Tyre, one in Amos 3.11, and one here in Micah 7.12. In the Septuagint, both of those references are missing in the editions based on the Masoretic text. Micah and Amos were contemporary prophets bearing a very similar message. And we discussed these passages at great length in part 7 of our 10-part Amos commentary presented here in early 2013. But we shall discuss them 
here also, because I believe this is important. Presenting this verse of Amos, Amos 3.11, among other things, we said that the Septuagint translators, who sometimes, and this is true, confused Canaanites for Phoenicians as they translated the Hebrew word in that manner on occasion. Those translators would certainly not consider Canaanites to be a part of Israel if ancient Tyre were a Canaanite city. Those translators had nothing to lose nor to gain by claiming Tyre as an Israelite city if it were truly a Canaanite city. No certain motive could be ascertained if they were trying to pervert the truth in those instances. However, the much later Masoretic text editors who lived long after the time of Christ would have everything to gain in maintaining the false identity of those who claim to be Judeans but are not if they could obscure history by disconnecting the relationship between the children of Israel and their former great city of Tyre from which, according to the classical historians, so many European colonies were launched in ancient times. In fact, in ancient Greek myth, Tyre was said to be the birthplace of Europa, the mythical figure for whom the continent is named. And that is something which is certainly not a coincidence. Here we will abbreviate the evidence we offered in that same presentation of Amos from Josephus's Against Appion, Book 1, where it is evident that he reckoned ancient Tyre to be a city of Israel. In that book, Josephus took it for granted that the ancient Tyrians were Israelites, and neither did he have anything to gain by such a reckoning. Only note that in this passage, Josephus uses the term Judeans to describe both ancient and contemporary, contemporary to his time, Judahites and Israelites. And therefore, for Josephus, the word Judean seems to be a religious designation as much as a tribal one. From line 161, of against Appion, book one. But now it is proper to satisfy the inquiry of those who disbelieve the records of barbarians and think none but Greeks to be worthy of credit and to produce many of these very Greeks who were acquainted with our nation in ancient times and to set before them such as upon occasion have made mention of us in their own writings. Pythagoras, Pythagoras is the famous and early Greek philosopher, esteemed to have lived from about 570 B.C. to about 495 B.C. Pythagoras, therefore, of Samos, lived in ancient times and was esteemed a person superior to all philosophers in wisdom and piety towards God. Now it is plain that he did not know, did not only know our doctrines, but was in very great measure a follower 
and admirer of them. There is not indeed extant any writing that is owned for his, but many there are who have written his history, of whom Hermippus is the most celebrated, who was a person very inquisitive in all sorts of history. Now this Hermippus, in his first book concerning Pythagoras, speaks thus, that Pythagoras, upon the death of one of his associates, whose name was Caliphon, a crotonate by birth, affirmed that this man's soul conversed with him both night and day, and enjoined him not to pass over a place where an ass had fallen down, as also not to drink of such waters as caused thirst again and to abstain from all sorts of reproaches. After which he adds thus, This he did and said in imitation of the doctrines of the Judeans and Thracians, which he transferred into his own philosophy. For it is very truly affirmed of this Pythagoras that he took a great many of the laws of Judeans, of the Judeans into his own philosophy. Nor was our nation unknown of old to several of the Greek cities, and indeed was thought worthy of imitation by some of them. This is declared by Theophrastus in his writings concerning laws. For he says that the laws of the Tyrians forbid men to swear foreign oaths. It's important. That line's important among which he enumerates some others, and particularly that called Corbin. This is related to the laws of the Tyrians. Which oath can only be found among the Judeans, and declares what a man may call a thing devoted to God. Nor indeed was Herodotus of Halicarnassus, Halicarnassus unacquainted with our nation, but mentions it after a way of his own, when he says this in the second book concerning the Colchians, his words are these, The only people who were circumcised and their privy members originally were the Colchians, the Egyptians, and the Ethiopians. But the Phoenicians and those Syrians that are in Palestine confess that they learned it from the Egyptians. Of course, Herodotus, that this is his perspective, right? Knowing or hearing that the Hebrews came from Egypt. And for those Syrians who live about the rivers Thermodon and Parthenius and their neighbors, the Macrones, they say that they have lately learned it from the Colchians. For these are the only people that are circumcised among mankind and appear to have done the very same thing with the Egyptians. But as for the Egyptians and Ethiopians and themselves, I am not able to say which of them received it from the other. This, therefore, is what Herodotus says, that the Syrians that are in Palestine are circumcised, but there are no inhabitants of Palestine that are circumcised except the Judeans, and therefore it must be his knowledge of them that enabled him to speak so much concerning them. And that's the end of my pass, of my citation of this passage of Josephus. And here, it is absolutely manifest that Josephus imagined Theophrastus to be referring to Israelites, 
where he quoted him as saying that the laws of the Tyrians forbid men to swear foreign oaths, and where he also discussed his description of the oath called Corbin among the Tyrians. Josephus also clearly imagined Herodotus to be referring to Israelites, where he described Herodotus's attestation that the Phoenicians and Syrians in Palestine were circumcised. Well, in Josephus's time, the people... The people who bore these names were of other tribes because Syria and Phoenicia became geographic designations. In the time of the ancient Greeks, the Israelites were predominant in Tyre and in Syria. And Herodotus referred to the Israelites as the Syrians of Palestine and several other places in his histories. Tyre was a city of ancient Israel, and the Septuagint version of Micah 7.12 and the Septuagint version of Amos 3.11 are wholly acceptable with this understanding. In fact, I would choose those versions to be truthful rather than what we see in the Masoretic text. Understanding this is important, that ancient Tyre was an Israelite city and that it was also the center of international trade in ancient Israel. It was the great port city which all the nations brought their merchandise into. This is fully elucidated in the lamentations over Tyre and the king of Tyre, which were uttered by the prophet Ezekiel. Chapters 27 and 28 of that prophecy. Would the prophet of God lament Canaanites? Certainly not. Tyre was a city of the children of Israel, and it serves as a type for the mystery Babylon of the last days, which also represents the system of international trade. And thy cities shall be leveled and parted among the Assyrians, and thy strong cities shall be parted from Tyre to the river, and from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. Verse 13 of Micah 7. Notwithstanding, the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein, for the fruit of their doings. Feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. The meaning of being fed with the rod the shepherd's staff, if you will, is a reference to chastisement from the 89th Psalm. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. Verse 15. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt will I show unto him marvelous things. 
nations. The nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of Yahweh our God and shall fear because of thee. Until the return of Christ, the children of Israel remain in Assyrian captivity and await redemption from bondage once again according to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt. From Jeremiah chapter 16 from verse 14. Therefore behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that it shall no more be said, Yahweh liveth, that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But Yahweh liveth, that brought the children of Israel from the land of the north, and from all the lands where he had driven them, and I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. This is what we await. This promise is unfulfilled. Behold, I will send for many fishers, saith Yahweh, and they shall fish them. And after will I send for many hunters. And they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For mine eyes are upon all their ways. They are not hid from my face. Contrary to the denominational sects. Neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes. As Israel was taken out of Egypt, we await Israel's deliverance from the lands of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. And we should expect it to be just as marvelous. Now for the nations which shall lick the dust like a serpent. They are all of Israel's enemies. Those nations gathered against Israel which are mentioned in the last day's prophecy of Micah 4.11. Why should their fate be the same as the serpent? Because they, too, are a portion of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They are kin to the serpent. Verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee, that pardons iniquity, and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever, because he delights in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. All of Israel's sins are cast into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. The hope 
of the children of Israel is manifest exclusively in Yahshua Christ. From Luke chapter 1, as Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, had announced, Blessed be Yahweh God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. Surely Zechariah had Micah in mind which had been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath which he swore to our father Abraham that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. The promises of God sworn unto our fathers from the days of old shall not fail. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 which is evidently a quote of Isaiah 28.16. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Next week we shall leave unannounced for now. But very soon we shall begin an exposition of Paul's epistles to the Romans. Epistle to the Romans, I'm sorry. The schedule, I will decide by Monday. Tomorrow, Sword Brethren, Martin Luther, Part 6. Good night and praise Yahweh.